Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join, join us inside the morgue. What's up and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice, and today we're dissecting another classic spinoff, CSI Vegas. You know we love CSI and everything they have to offer, and we love to see just how wrong they get everything. So today we are analyzing Season 1, Episode 8, titled Pipe Cleaner. Two burglars are in a house looking through it, and they find a safe. The one tells the other guy to see what the homeowner has in the bedroom upstairs. And he goes up there and he discovers something very suspicious and unsettling in the bathroom. He calls 911 and tells them to hurry to the address of the house and says he didn't do it before hanging up. That's so suspicious. Can you imagine being a 911 operator? First thing you hear is, I didn't do it. I would not believe them. Then we cut to the lab where Grism is with Sarah, asking if she's heard of Janice Wu, a forensic artist. There's a big trial starting in the coming week. Just then, Sarah gets a call from the undersheriff about a case. They go to the house where the 911 call just came from. The guys in the house were trying to break into the safe, but they were very unsuccessful. And they had only been there about 10 minutes before making the call to the cops last night. They were terrified that they would be caught and the police would think that they were the ones responsible for what's upstairs. In the bathtub is a bloody mess with human skeletal remains floating in liquid which is also a very unsettling picture in my mind, even though I watched the episode. <laughs> it's as if the man just melted to death. So Newton's law of cooling is a good alibi for the group of burglars. The liquid in the brew started hours before the men got there. The homeowner is Eric Shaw. He runs a convention center. Grism fishes out a watch with the supposed decedent's name engraved on the back of it, reading, quote, I love you, Eric, forever, comma, T. There really isn't much left of the victim at this point, if that's even who is in the tub in the first place. Next to the tub are empty jugs of sulfuric acid and hydrogen peroxide, so there may not be much DNA left to run to confirm the victim's ID after all of those chemicals had been in the tub with him. Using those chemicals basically melts the body away. Piranha solution is used to clean organic residue off substrates, and it also makes surfaces hydrophilic, meaning that they're compatible with water, because it adds an oxygen and hydrogen group to most surfaces. But it is a very strong oxidizing agent, so it essentially rips organic matter to base components in minutes, which is why the decedent in the tub is essentially all goo. Grism investigates the scene further, sees there's a broken window and the glass scattered on the floor. Glass can actually tell you a lot more about a crime scene than you would think. There are different types of glass, and when glass is shattered by a forceful impact, it scatters to distances up to 9 feet, and it can be lodged in suspect's shoes, clothes, or hair. For a broken window, the breakage pattern can be analyzed to possibly determine the angle of trajectory, too. Sarah sprays what I'm assuming is Blue Star on the glass, and this is a green flag because Blue Star is a rapid qualitative test for PSA detection for biological samples like blood. It tests for the presence of hemoglobin, which is a component in red blood cells, but they find no evidence of blood or anything on the glass. They put the classic yellow card numbers next to the jugs of sulfuric acid, and they're photographing the tub. On the wall next to the window, there's an impression like someone hit the wall or something. From the damage in the bathroom, it seems like Shaw put up a fight. Sarah is putting reagents on the broken glass by the window, Folsom is scooping the liquid from the tub into the bucket for testing, and another green flag, you most definitely would do this at a scene. If our investigators had gone to a scene like this, they would have to take everything in the tub back for Alice and I to investigate. 
I would never want that. But all of it's evidence, so there could be more in there that they just can't see yet. So all of it has to come back to the morgue. There's a good bet that the killer was a lot bigger than Shaw. Gil thinks that the dent in the wall is from someone's skull, and because it's so high up, he thinks the attacker was taller than Eric. The impact is about six and a half feet off the ground. Downstairs, Folsom starts hammering away at one of the walls, and Allie walks in, joking that she was always taught to preserve the crime scene. Since the victim was poured down the drain, if they jet the system with water, they could lose all of the evidence, so they have to extract the victim pipe by pipe before he goes into the main sewer. The detective out front is tracking down the victim's ex. The two of them were in the middle of a divorce. Folsom and Allie go and talk to the ex-wife while Sarah stays behind. Tammy Shaw and Eric separated last year. She's at a children's beauty pageant with her two daughters. To rule her out, they need her hair samples to see if sulfuric acid is present since she still has access to Eric's home. The manager of the beauty pageant, Chase Starr, comes up and sees Tammy upset. He asks if Eric's death was random or if it was business-related. He goes on to say that he used to rent a space at Eric's convention center, but it didn't go well. Eric did his business in cash and got in trouble for tax evasion, and there were always shady people around. Back at the scene, Sarah and Grissom are clearing out all the gooey remains from the pipes, which is why Folsom was destroying the wall so they could access the pipes in the first place. This is an extremely messy job, as you can imagine, and I can't even imagine the smell of that place. I'm sure it's not great. I One thing that I think is interesting since working this job, I used to be able to watch any kind of gross like scene in a horror movie and not be phased, but I was actually watching... It chapter two yesterday with my boyfriend Costa and there's a really gross scene where there's this like <laughs> zombie creature and he vomits this like brown liquid into someone's face Ooh. and I actually almost gagged and Costa looked at me surprised and he's like how are you faced by that and I was like because now since working in forensics I can imagine what that smells like. You saying that just now, I imagined the smell too. I know. I I imagined like purge fluid and like (laughs) decomp smell. I'm sorry. (laughs) You're the only person who understands because I was trying to explain it to Costa and he's like, that's weird. He just doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He's like, oh yeah, that sucks. And I'm like, no, you don't understand how much it sucks though. Because like I, I was like, oh my God, I've never been bothered by this stuff before. But now that I know how this stuff smells, it's just a whole different ballgame watching horror movies now. (laughs) So they put all this slimy goo into buckets, numbering each one as they go. Back at the lab, Sarah and Grissom are now searching through Anson Wicks's trash. They actually are the ones who took his trash to see if they can find any vulnerabilities. And they're not finding much. They're trying their best to do everything they can before Hodge's upcoming trial. They think that Janice Wu could be an accomplice to Wicks's crime. Someone had to forge Hodge's fingerprints, and it may have been her. She could be more than just an expert witness. So to try and get close to her, they sneakily hire her as an outside consultant for their human sludge case. Sarah asks her to help open the safe from Shaw's home. Wu says it's easy enough to duplicate fingerprints, which makes her seem suspicious in the Hodges trial. So she has a 10-print card from a previous case, and she actually 3D prints the fingerprints to mimic his original prints to open the safe. So green flag here because new research using 3D printing technology is actually being used and researchers have found that it is possible for a 3D print to bypass a fingerprint scanner. ThreatPost did a podcast where Lindsay O'Donnell talked about the new technology being developed and the 3D prints. Through very detailed trial and error, they were able to produce a mold to make a print. 
There have been so many advances in 3D printing over the last years, and the thought of scientists or engineer producing a 3D print like this is very likely. But I do have a cool story、Ooh. about 3D printing. So back in undergrad, I did a whole research project on 3D printing and forensic facial reconstruction. And I did so much research on 3D printing itself, and the thought of 3D printing and forensics mixing is so cool. Yeah, because it's actually useful、mm-hmm. if you think about it. Like the research that I was doing was instead of doing like the actual facial reconstruction on the skull, like how it's been done for years, they 3D printed the skull. And they did the whole reconstruction on the 3D print, so you didn't have to like ruin the only human remains left that you had. That's amazing, and it worked. Oh my god, that's such a good idea! Because yeah, when you have to do stuff with the actual remains, you have to be so careful. The detail that the print was getting was almost the exact same as what was on the skull. Fascinating. So like her 3D printing a fingerprint from like a 10 print card, it's not too far fetched. That's. That's crazy to think like how far science and technology has come. I just thought that was so cool that their three D people are、things. able to do that. That is so cool. I love that you have a story too associates with. That's awesome. <laughs> Obsessed. So back in the show, once her three D print is finished, she sprays it with triglycerides, which is an ester derived from glycerol and three fatty acids. She did this because latent fingerprints are made of water, fatty acids, amino acids, and triglycerides. So she was adding a component of what a real fingerprint would have. Sarah uses the three D printed finger to open the safe. There is a stack of papers in the safe, his convention center paperwork, and some lawsuits. He was at war with a couple of companies whose events were canceled because of the COVID pandemic. He declined to refund the advance deposits, which may have just been bribes. One of the plaintiffs is Chase Star, a doomsday preparedness company, is also suing Shaw. The owner is named Herman Maddock. He once stood trial for attempted murder and walked. He even sounds like his name sounds like he is a doomsday preparedness person. I know. I agree with you, and I don't know why. I don't know how to describe. It's mostly his last、yeah. name, Maddox.、Yeah. Just sounds like、hmm. he would be the type. You're like, yeah, that sounds like sounds like a guy who has a bunker. He has a bunker in the middle of nowhere with food for the next ten years. Bunker in the middle of nowhere, off the grid. <laughs> At the morgue, we see the buckets of goo and the skeletal remains laid out on tables. The bones look very accurate. The coloring of them is、uh, just about right. It's a tannish beige brown color. The killer knew his chemistry because there are barely any bones left. What is left of the skull and two femur bones and a hip bone remain. There are little remnants that could confirm identity or tell them cause of death. So, green flag here. We love this in our podcast. Everyone's wearing PPE. Amazing! Yay! <laughs> We love safety, <laughs> especially when you're handling goo remains,、yeah. <laughs> goopy remains.、Ew. So they have their goggles, they have gowns, they have sleeves, they have gloves. All that's missing are masks, face shields, and maybe hair nets. I would definitely want to be wearing all the PPE I could in this case, especially a mask. Especially a mask because maybe it would like block some of the smell.、Mm-hmm. They're just nothing on their face. One of the hacks I recently learned was to put like essential oil in your mask、Ooh. if you have like a really bad decomp. I saw a TikTok on this. Put essential oil right underneath your nose, like on the mask, and then you'll just smell like lavender or whatever. We gotta get essential oils for the morgue. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we have a.、Uh... We have some sprays that we use that are actually so good at covering up decomp smell, and one of them is very berry, 
I would spray that in my mask. Actually, that we might be too much berry, in my face. berry all day, every day. I think I abused it the other day, though. We had a really stinky day, and I kept spraying it. I love when the funeral home comes, and they're like, ooh, this is the best stuff. Yeah, because they use the same stuff that we do. I always get so excited. They walk in, and they're like, very berry. And I'm like, yeah, you know. Yeah. You know. There's lavender in the back, too. There's, I know, we have the lavender. Lavender one's pretty good, but very berry. I don't know. Something's different about it. I forget the name of the company, otherwise I'd shout them out. It's like Shiva something. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's Shiva Sense, yeah, I think. That's it. And they're actually they're from New York, I think. We ordered a whole case of Beriberi. I would also in this situation that they're in, I would definitely want a face shield on cuz I feel like there's got to be some like spatter. Yeah, you're definitely in the splash zone yeah. with all the goo in the buckets. <laughs> like you're at SeaWorld or something. You <laughs> no. need a poncho. <laughs> So back to the show, in one of the buckets that they are going through, there's a glass button and a few gene rivets. In cases involving chemicals and acid, bone marrow in the bones will usually be completely dissolved. They do find a toenail stuck on some cartilage, though, possibly the meniscus. So your meniscus is basically the top of your knee. It's rubbery cartilage that acts as like a shock absorber between the shin bone and the thigh bone. The ME is measuring the two femur bones that they found, which is a green flag, because this is actually done in anthropology exams. So we've touched on this before during our bones episode, but forensic anthropology is the examination of human skeletal remains to help with the identification on unidentified human remains. Anthropologists can interpret trauma and estimate time of death. An anthropologist first has to determine if the bones are human, and there are certain methods to evaluate bones, such as the determination between male and female, or age, or how tall the person was. The profile altogether includes sex, age, ancestry, height, time of death, and trauma to the bones. Age is usually determined by the size and development of the skull. Approximate height can be determined by measurement of the bones, and the best way to measure is the femur bones. This bone runs from your hip to your knee, and the length of the femur can also estimate sex, since females are typically shorter than males. So to estimate height, if the subject is male, measure the femur in centimeters, multiply the length by 2.34, and add 65.53. The calculation you end up with is accurate within 5 centimeters. If you're interested in anthropology, go to crimemuseum.org. They have a really cool detailed page, which will be linked in our show notes. Anyway, the two femurs that they have on the table are not the same length, so, dun-dun-dun, they have two victims here. Allie and Folsom go to the scene and analyze the whole house. She bags hair samples from the bed, he analyzes kitchen knives, she looks in the dishwasher, and he looks in Shaw's toolbox. One of the tools found is a handsaw from the Prepper People, the preparedness company who was suing Shaw. If Shaw was dismembered first, that would explain why the remains were out of order in the pipes. There is trace on the blade of the saw, but it's not bone. It's linoleum. I have no idea how she was able to tell that it was that and not bone. I know. I, I was wondering if I would be able to tell. I probably wouldn't. I'd have to send it to the lab and be like, what is this? She's probably friends with the guy from Body of Proof who could tell that it was yogurt from the microscope slide. <laughs> yeah, they were probably friends. <laughs> They're probably friends. They talk about all the weird things they notice. <laughs> <laughs> so Allie goes down and photographs the floor. A hand towel with the same buttons as the ones found on the pipe is hanging from one of the drawers. It looks like there was only one cut on the floor. It appears that the killers gave up after cutting one limb, realizing how hard it is to dismember somebody by hand that way. Which, yeah, I could imagine it's probably very hard using a handsaw to go through bone. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. And that's when they decided to melt Shaw instead. It's possible that Shaw didn't die in the bathroom and that he died in the kitchen where they found the linoleum scraped up on the floor. And they may be looking at two killers instead of one. 
Allie notices cereal crumbs on the floor by the pantry. She opens the cabinet and sees a cereal box with blood spatter on it and a bullet hole through the box into the back of the pantry. So a red flag here because she does not photograph anything at all. And I feel like in this moment, you're literally finding key evidence. So you want to photograph where it is. But she just goes, you're like, she goes ahead and just takes the bullet out of the wall. Yeah. I don't know. In that situation, I seem like you're like, don't touch anything. Get me a camera. Like, Like, photograph the crumbs, photograph the pantry. But she doesn't do any of that. So she doesn't photograph the bullet in the cabinet or the cereal box with the bullet hole through it. And she just takes the bullet out of the wall with metal forceps which again, you're not supposed to use metal on bullet fragments. So this 45 caliber bullet was jacketed. It hit bone and shed its skin. There's no grooves on the core recovered. In order to match the core to a gun, they need the jacket, which probably broke off somewhere in the body. And that jacket is now somewhere in the many buckets of goo that they have. Just then, the ME pulls out a metal detector to help find the jacket in the buckets. So green flag, the metal detector that they had was very similar to the one that we actually have, like a little hand metal detector. We use it to find bullets in body cavities so we don't have to keep going back and forth to our fluoroscope, which is in a separate room from our autopsy suite. Just as quickly as there is a green flag, there is also a red flag because he has the buckets on metal tables and he uses the metal detector while the buckets are on these tables, so of course it's gonna go off because they're on metal tables. I will admit, I have had a stupid moment like that where I've done that, where we've had, like, a body on the metal table, and, like, we're looking for, like, a bullet fragment or something, and I just get the metal detector, I'm like, wow, it's beeping right away, and I'm like, oh, they're on a metal table. I'm an idiot. (laughs) So if he was smart, he would have taken the buckets off a metal table, but obviously we have those moments, too. Everybody makes mistakes. (laughs) So they dump the one bucket through a strainer, but they don't see the jacket. But then it hits them that there's salt and iron contents in the remains, and that's possibly why the metal detector was going off. I'm really not sure if that would make the detector go off, but your body is about 70% iron, and that iron's found in your red blood cells and in your muscle cells, which are called myoglobin. And sodium facilitates many other bodily functions, including fluid volume and acid-base balance, Your body contains about 250 grams of salt. But again, I don't know if that's enough to make a metal detector go off. Right. I'm wondering, I should have looked more into this. I don't even know if Google had the answer. I know, and I feel weird Googling if dissolved body parts will go off. And I'm, I, I know, don't want I'm probably already history. on some kind of watch list, just for the things I'm constantly... The things I Google at work probably make people <laughs> very questionable at me. My brother, who I don't think listens, but if you do, hi Brian. And my sister too, Barbara, they always say, jokingly, because I'm always like Googling or like... I'm reading about true crime stuff. And I'm like, well, it's because, like, it's my job. And it's what I studied in school. And they're always like, oh, that's the perfect cover story. Back in the show, the team takes a visit to Maddock at his gun range. Folsom and Allie tell Maddock that they're investigating Shaw's murder. And Maddock jokes that he can now drop the case that he had suing him. Allie shows Maddock a photo of the saw used to carve up Shaw's body, the one with his company's logo on it, and Maddock's fingerprints were found on the handle of the saw, and they had his prints on file from his last arrest. So this is also another green flag, because we talked about this last week, but this is accurate because when you're arrested, you have a record, and your prints are on file forever, and can be found in local police databases, and also in larger databases. But he said that he gave him the saw because he was trying to do business with the man. Allie then holds up the evidence bag with the bullet. Maddox says the ammo was store-bought, and that's not his because he melts his own ammo. Folsom's going to come back with a search warrant to search the property. 
Back in the morgue, Sarah is continuing to fish through the sludge. She finds teeth in the gooey mixture, and there are no roots to the teeth, meaning that they are veneers, which are fake teeth. So the porcelain they use on the fake teeth is resistant to acid, and Shaw's teeth were natural from what they can tell from his photos, so the veneers must have come from a second victim. Odontologists have to take 3D intraoral scans to make veneers, and Sarah's going to do a bite reconstruction with the teeth. They actually do make a clay mold of the lower and upper jaws, and they put the teeth into that mold, and they scan it into the computer, and they make a digital model. And once they get the digital smile, Folsom can't help but think that the smile is very similar to one that he's seen before. And he pulls up a photo of Chase Star, and the two smiles look very identical. But Star is still alive. And them making their own bite reconstruction made me think of a past dental case that I worked on with our odontologist. We had a explosion victim, and he was facially unrecognizable, so we had to disarticulate his jaw and basically reconstruct the jaw with modeling clay outside of the body, and we kind of did our own bite reconstruction. It's kind of similar to what they did. That's crazy. Yeah, definitely similar. And I, just before we continue with the episode, I risked the Google and I Googled, can iron and blood set off metal detector? And first thing that came up is from irondisorders.org. So if you're curious, go look into it. And just on Google, it says, many think iron is a heavy metal, which it is not. Iron is a metal, though. And in fact, people with too much iron in their bodies can set off metal detectors. So I guess it depends on the amount of iron that is in the body. That makes sense. I can't imagine having so much, I mean, just being a person and walking through a metal detector and setting it off and not knowing why, and then finding out you just have too much iron in your blood. You're like, I have nothing on me, I swear. swear. I panic enough walking through an airport, even though, like, I'm not suspicious. I'm just like, oh my god, (laughs) they're gonna search me. TSA just makes me so nervous. I get so intimidated by TSA. So back to the show, Folsom and Allie go to the pageant place and confront Chase, or should we say Grayson? He lied about his name. Did you know that identical twins don't have identical fingerprints? I just love a twin plot twist. He says he admits that he did lie about his name and that he does have a twin brother who he had been filling in for. He went by Chase because one of the mothers at the pageant had a restraining order against him so he couldn't go there as himself. Side note, I'm very curious about this restraining order that they just don't bring up again. I know it's not... They totally gloss over it. Yeah, I know it's not the main crime in the episode. He just casually drops like, okay, yeah, I'm pretending to be my brother because this woman has a restraining order. It's like, hold on, let's go back. Rewind. But like, why? Should you not be here? You shouldn't be here. (laughs) You're breaking the law. So Grayson is subbing in for Chase because the real Chase had disappeared right before the biggest event of the year. He didn't call the police because he didn't want to waste anyone's time because he thought Chase was just using drugs again. Allie tells Grayson the horrible news that Chase is dead, and they were able to confirm with dental records that it was Chase in the bathtub. Grayson says he was at the pageant two nights ago covering for Chase and helping some of the kids with their routine, and Tammy was one of the people there that night as well. As they talk to Tammy, they say that her husband was murdered with a 45 caliber bullet and Star had a weapon of the same caliber registered in his name. She knew that Grayson was filling in for Chase that night, but didn't say anything. And just then, Allie notices a wound of some sort on Tammy's right upper thigh. Her wound looks like a chemical burn, but she says it's not a chemical burn and that it's an injury from a hot glue incident. Okay, I like to do... Uh, I like to make my own Halloween costumes and stuff like that, and I use a lot of hot glue. I have burned myself a lot of times. Does not look like what that lady had on her leg. Definitely looked like chemical burn to me. 
So Folsom says it looks more like an exothermic ulcer than a hot glue mishap. But Allie doesn't quite believe her and takes a swab of the wound to see if there's any trace of evidence or chemical components that would match the ones found at the scene. And then Tammy is taken in for questioning. She knew both the victims and had access to the chemicals through her job as a secretary at Stockton Paper. Sulfuric acid and hydrogen peroxide are both used in paper manufacturing and recycling. She confesses that Chase had asked her to get her those bottles. She did it for him because she said they were in love, but she doesn't know anything more than that. Grissom was there looking through the double glass at Tammy, and he isn't so sure that she really did commit the murder. He goes back to the morgue and sifts through the sludge once more to find the missing bullet jacket. He didn't find that, but he did find something useful. He is still stuck on how Tammy couldn't have made the indent in the bathroom wall because she wasn't tall enough. Sarah leaves to go to Wix's house since it's trash night to get the trash to look through to see if there's anything that they can get on him before the trial. In one of the trash bags she got, she found a napkin with lipstick smeared across it. The geneticist in the lab analyzes the napkin. She cuts the napkin into small pieces and puts them into centrifuge tubes, which are these small little plastic tubes that they have with like caps attached to them. And at my old job, I used to work as a molecular biologist. So I did a lot of like DNA and RNA testing and we used so many of these tubes. I felt like nostalgic watching the episode and I had my pipette in one hand and I would hold the tube in the other hand. I'd be able to like pop it and close it with like my thumb. Feels super cool, <laughs> like a super cool scientist. So Sarah thinks the napkin came from the upstairs bathroom since the trash bag had floss and men's deodorant mixed in with everything else. Wix may have had a confidant, and this could be the key into finding out who that person is. The standard SCR test showed too much degradation in the sample, so they performed a pre-CR test. Pre-CR is an enzymatic process that repairs broken DNA, both mitochondrial and genomic. She spins down the centrifuge tubes and then pipettes the samples into separate tubes for testing. Sarah goes back to Grissom, who is stuck on the dent found in the bathroom wall. A petite mother of two could not have made that impression, and they've been thinking about the dent all wrong. It couldn't have been made with the back of the head because there's no dents from the shoulders and the back. The impression in the wall could have been made from the crown of the victim's head if he was completely knocked off of his feet. The team then sets everything up to do an accident reconstruction. They dump hydrogen peroxide into the tub, and they have a dummy set up with a bucket of sulfuric acid that they have set up to be dumped into the tub. When the two chemicals react, an explosion actually occurs, knocking the dummy completely off its feet and its head goes right into the wall, about six feet off the ground. The dummy then falls into the tub face first. So Chase shot Eric. He gave up dismembering Shaw and he came up with the idea to melt him instead to get rid of the body. The reaction of the chemicals blew Chase back against the wall and then he bounced into the tub. Shaw's death was a murder and Starr's death was an accident. They were actually trying to solve the killer's death this whole time. Tammy is then released because they could not prove that she knew what the chemicals she gave Chase were going to be used for. The pre-CR test came back on the lipstick sample on the napkin, and it worked. There was buccal, which just means from, like, your inner cheek, DNA from two people on the napkin, Wix and Janice Wu. So Wu was Wix's accomplice in whatever crime he committed in the previous episode against Hodges. There was a lot of background drama that we definitely missed here, but I, I'm very curious about it. Just as Wix's trial was about to begin, he fired Wu from the civil cases as his expert witness. So maybe she wasn't an accomplice? This episode leads into what I'm assuming is a very intense trial for whatever Wix did, but honestly, I'm pretty impressed with how many things CSI Vegas actually got right compared to our very first episode of CSI. So am I. They definitely got a lot of things right. Definitely seemed like 
an improvement. This was also newer. This season came out in 2021. And they still were some red flags, but not as bad as our first yeah. episode, CSI. They can't and then get everything our, right. <laughs> our werewolf vampire episode, CSI Miami. Oh, gosh, but I mean, Miami. The sunglasses, the puns, Miami Horatio Kane, come on. There. I still love it, but yeah, it's awful. <laughs> So, as always, we researched a true crime story that's very similar to the one told in this show, and it's crazy that there's actually stories out there like this. So, today we're discussing the case of Adolf Luckert and his murdered wife, Louisa. Luckert was a German-American businessman in Chicago. He married Louisa two months after his first wife died. The marriage did little to ease his restlessness when he was rumored to be engaged with several extramarital affairs. They had four children, and he founded his own business, which was a successful sausage and packaging company. The couple had a history of domestic violence, and they fought on a regular basis. Neighbors frequently heard him and Louisa arguing, and their disagreements became so heated that Lutgert eventually moved his bedroom from the house to a small chamber inside the factory. So soon after, Louisa found out that her husband was having an affair with the family's maid, who also happened to be her niece. She was enraged at this news, and the new scandal got the attention of the people in the neighborhood who were already gossiping about the couple's marital woes. According to a source, Lutgert had financial difficulties during the Panic of 1896. Lutgert soon gave the neighbors even more to gossip about. One night during another shouting match with Louisa, he responded to her anger over his affair with the maid by taking his wife by the throat and choking her. But before she collapsed... Lutgert saw neighbors peering into him from the parlor window at his home, and he released her like nothing had happened. Oh my god. Could you imagine seeing that? No, I can't imagine him trying to just brush it off like nothing was happening. Like, he just, like, dropped her and started whistling, like, do-do-do, nothing to see. Like, are you kidding? Freaking 1800s, man. Yeah, this was the 1800s, by the way. Yeah. Very different time period. So a few days after, Lutgert was seen chasing his wife down the street. He was shouting at her and waving a revolver. Oh my, this dude sounds awful. Yeah, he can stay sleeping in the chamber at the sausage factory. We don't want him. Not a fan. (laughs) Not a fan. After a couple of blocks, Lutgert broke off the chase and walked silently back to the factory. Again, probably just whistling with his hands in his pocket, acting like nothing weird just happened. On May 1st, 1897, Louisa was reported missing. Lutgert told her children that the mother had gone to visit her sister the previous night but never came back. After a few days, her brother went to the police to report her disappearance. Lutgert told the police that she ran away with another man. When her brother confronted Lutgert about why he did not inform the police about Louisa's disappearance, Lutgert said he was trying to avoid a scandal. Trying to avoid a scandal after I was just running down the street waving a revolver. He only cares about himself, apparently, not his missing wife. The police discovered that on the night Louisa disappeared, she was seen entering the sausage factory with her husband at 10.30 p.m., A watchman from the factory confirmed the account, saying that Lutgert gave him an errand to run. When he returned, the door to the factory was locked. During that night, Lutgert was apparently working alone in the factory basement. He turned on the steam underneath the middle vat just before 9pm, and it was still running when the watchman returned. Lutgert had remained in the basement until 2am. The next morning, the watchman asked if the fire under the vat should be put out, and Lutgert said to keep them burning. When the watchman went to the basement, he noticed a hose sending water into the middle vat in front of a sticky, glue-like appearance. 
He noticed that it seemed to contain bits of bone, but thought nothing of it since Lutgert used all sorts of waste meats to make his sausages. Okay, that's true. At first I was going to be like, why didn't you think anything? And I forgot it was a sausage factory. So he probably sees bones and gross stuff like that all the time. On May 3rd, another employee noticed a slimy brown substance and Lutgert told him to not mention it anymore. The police also came across bills that documented Lutgert having bought 50 pounds of arsenic and 325 pounds of potash the day before the murder. So I got a full confession. When I first read this, I was like, potatoes! (laughs) Potatoes and arsenic! It's potash! (laughs) We were at work and I was reading this and I literally go, ah, he bought arsenic and potatoes! (laughs) I was like enthralled by this crime. I was like, what were the potatoes for? I'm so curious. Potash. Potash is like um, something that you use for cleaning, like it makes soap or something like that. Oh, okay. But yeah, it has like no business in it. A sausage factory. <laughs> Neither does arsenic. Well, actually, back in like the 1800s, they used arsenic for like everything. Everybody had it in their house. It was just like they, they used it to That's preserve true. some meats. And then we're wondering why everybody died. And they used it in like paints, green paints. And they're like, oh, everybody in this green room keeps dying. Because it's what's arsenic. happening? <laughs> All right, so on May 15th, a search was conducted on the 12-foot-long, 5-feet-deep middle vat that was two-thirds filled with a brownish liquid. The officers drained the liquid from the vat and found several pieces of bone and two gold rings, including one that had the initials LL engraved on it. Louisa had worn both of those rings. Due to all of the accumulated evidence, they were convinced that Lutgert killed his wife, boiled her in acid, and disposed of her remains by burning them in the factory furnace. The officers started searching in the furnace, where they found burned foul sausages and human remains. Bone fragments identified by a forensic anthropologist included metatarsal bones, toe phalanx, and the head of a rib. Due to the overwhelming evidence, Lutgert, still claiming his innocence, was arrested and tried. Even after all of this, he's still like, oh, I didn't do anything. You can't prove it. If he has anything, it is the audacity. And potash. Not potatoes, though. (laughs) He lacks potatoes. The prosecution presented bone fragments and the ring inscribed LL recovered from one of the grinders in Lutgert's sausage factory as its main evidence that Louisa had been killed there. During the trial, observers thought that Lutgert seemed unconcerned and overly confident that he would be found innocent. Yes, he has the audacity. Oh, yeah. He he was a man in the 1800s. They all had the audacity. The jury was unable to reach a unanimous verdict, resulting in a hung jury. The case was retried in January 1898 in the same courthouse. The prosecution used George Amos Dorsey, an anthropologist from the Field Columbian Museum in Chicago, as an expert witness to prove that the bones found were human. Chemist Carl Volker testified that there was no occasion for caustic potash in the sausage factory. Thank you. Carl knows what's up. He knows what's up, yeah. (laughs) This time, the jury came to a unanimous verdict that Lutgert was guilty. He was convicted and sentenced to life in prison on February 9th, 1898. Eighteen months later, on July 7th, 1899, Lutgert was found dead in his cell in the Illinois State Penitentiary. The cause of death was fatty degenerative heart disease. This case was one of the first trials to be widely covered by media. Newspapers from Chicago reported on it daily, and some of the reporters tried to eavesdrop on the jury deliberations. And it's also credited with making murder trials a subject of general interest in the media. And this case was also the earliest to use an anthropologist as a forensic expert in a trial. Wow. That's, yeah. A lot came from this case. I re- yeah. I didn't realize it was the, like, one of the earliest uses of anthropology 
as like a forensic expert. This time, like forensics was still in its infancy. That's true. That's fair. So this was probably like a pivotal turning point in the field of forensics, like having a forensic expert testify on like human remains. Oh yeah, yeah, because it had to be important for this case because it was a sausage factory. So he had to be able to be sure that it was human bone versus animal bone which is probably found all the time yep. in a sausage factory which is like the first thing that an anthropologist has to do they have to determine animal from human yeah so that brings us to the end of our episode we tallied a total of seven green flags and only two red flags so in our opinion this episode of csi vegas does pass in terms of forensic accuracy thanks for hanging out with us and if you enjoy our podcast don't forget to share it hit us up on instagram or twitter or dm us with any show suggestions See you next week for a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye.